You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. And I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. We're glad that you're here. So if you have your Bible or your device, you can go ahead and open that to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. And those of you that may be new to us this morning, what we do here is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so Joshua 22 is where we find ourselves this morning. And, and so in the latter parts of Joshua, those of you that have been with us, you know that, that we have taken some pretty big chunks. Okay. Well, this morning is not much different than that as we're going to try to take on the whole chapter of 22. And I liken it to this. Have you ever sat in front of a meal, maybe that you ordered at a restaurant or you go to your granny's house and they put this food in front of you and your first thought is there's no way I'm going to eat all that and then in 10 minutes lo and behold there's crumbs and you're trying to figure out how to swipe that last little bit of gravy off your plate with the little piece of roll that you have left I hope that this morning is similar we have a lot to eat we have a lot to think about a lot to consider but Lord willing we'll finish it in about I'm not even going to give you a time but we do have a second service, so that's in your favor. We do have a second service. So, so, so this journey in Joshua has been fascinating. Um, some, some very familiar Bible stories that we've gone through and some that maybe you've never read before. Um, where we are at this point, I don't have time to give you a full background, but where we are at this point is that God's people are settling in to the promised land. This is the land that was promised to Abraham way back when, and this is now the time and the moment that they are settled. Another important piece of context for this chapter is that there were two and a half tribes that made a deal with Moses before they crossed over in a land that they wanted to settle. The tribe of Gad, the tribe in, in the half tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites. They made a deal with Moses. Hey, we want to settle in this land that's on this side of the Jordan. Moses kind of goes back and forth with them, consults with the Lord, and they make an agreement. Moses says, it's okay if you can go ahead. I'm sorry, you, it, it's okay for you to settle in this land as long as when it comes time to fight that you send your men and you fight. Well, they held true to their promise, and this is when the two and a half tribes, the, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half tribe of Manasseh are going back across the Jordan to the land that is rightfully theirs. And so what I want us to do this morning, I, I am, I, it's, it's going to feel a little bit just like story time. I'm just going to read through some sections and then give some commentary on each section. There'll be some application along the way. And then Lord willing, if we all make it to the other side, then I'm gonna give you just a few takeaways to close our time together. So if you would look down with me in Joshua chapter 22, beginning in verse one. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites in the half tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. Verse three, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Down to this day, you have been careful, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. This is a fantastic moment. This battle has gone on for approximately seven years. 
And those warriors, those soldiers from these two and a half tribes have been separated from their families. They have been faithful to keep their word. They have been fighting on behalf of their fellow Israelites. But most importantly, they have been obeying the Lord. And so rightfully so, they receive a commendation. They're commended for their efforts. They're commended for their work. Then in verse 5, we see what often follows a commendation in Scripture. We see a commission. Verse 5 says, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Now listen, friends. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. And so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. There's a pattern in Scripture that often when there's commendation, it's followed with commission. Um, you see it in First and Second Thessalonians. You see it in a couple of, other, of, of the other of Paul's letters where there's this encouragement, there's this commending, and then there's a commissioning. And I, I really like that pattern, and it's not really the direct point of this text or the other text that I mentioned, but as we think about relating to one another, as we think about what it looks like to encourage obedience, particularly in the position of leadership, what you see as a biblical pattern is you see the desire to win the individuals, and that commendation or that winning, that encouragement, is to be the motivation for the obedience. Now, it doesn't always work that way right? Sometimes you can be just as encouraging and as nice on the front end as you want to be, and, and the result is not obedience and winning over of that group or of that individual. However, I do think it's really important for us to notice and point out that that is a pattern in Scripture. There's an encouraging, there's a thank you, there's been effort on behalf of Joshua to consider how God has used this particular group of people for the good of their lives and of their well-being. And he's intentional about thinking about that, but he's also intentional about how he communicates that to them. And then he gives them this commission. Now, of singular importance, we have about four or five things that he lists. The first part of this commission is we see that they aren't just to possess the commands. Did you notice that in verse five? Only be only be very careful to observe the commandment. They have the commandments. They've been told the commandments. They've been read the commandments. They have even observed the commandments. But as they move on now, he says, don't just possess them. I mean, that hasn't been the MO up to this point. And so don't let that change. Don't, don't just have the commands, but observe the commands. Second, he he commissions them to love the Lord. Third, to walk in his ways. And I love this next one is, is to, to cling to him, to cleave to him. The picture here is of a mother and its child or her infant. And there's an, a necessity. There's, there's a, a knowing, a constant of the baby needs the mother. Like, like there's not a moment in the infant's life that he can't or shouldn't be in some way thought of by the mother and cling to the mother. And that's the imagery, that's the picture of what he's encouraging these two and a half tribes to do as they now depart is to cleave to the Lord, cling to him, 
and don't, don't let him go. And verse five is to serve him. And he's encouraging them to do it with all they have, with every fiber of their being, with every resource that they have to serve and love and worship Yahweh. And friends, it's no secret, this is good counsel for us all. And I pray that God gives us the grace to do it. In verses seven through nine, I'm not gonna read those word for word, but what we have there is, is the two and a half tribes departure. And so they receive this blessing and they depart and they make their way back to the land that they have been promised. And I want you to pick up with me in verse 10. Verses 10, 11, and 12. And it says, And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. That, it's, it's big. It's noticeable. This isn't a small construction. It's gaudy. That's what that word means. Verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it said... Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. That did not take long, did it? In the first few verses, we have this commending, we have this commissioning, we have this celebration of these two and a half tribes and the soldiers and their commitment. There's a recognition of the time that they've spent away and and they send them on. And and I don't know exactly how to hear, and I don't want to read too much into it, or, or to read to you the tone of the people of Israel heard. But it says it two times, and I don't know if it's just this gossipy, I don't know the intent, and so again, there's no reason to really read into that too much, but they've caught wind that these two and a half tribes have built an altar. Now the emotions here aren't mentioned, but there could be a variety, because they know, and I'm going to read them in a second, they've been given clear instructions of the people of God around any construction of any altar and where worship should be and who it should be for and and who it should be to. But the Israelites of hearing of this news, they're probably sad. There's probably some that are mad. There's probably some that are sad and mad, but really reluctant to do anything about it. There's probably those among the group that are sad, mad, yet eager to confront and to do something about the construction of this altar. And there's probably those who are just outright disappointed. But it's safe to say, regardless of the emotion, is that the immediate assumption was that these two and a half tribes spiritually have gone rogue. They've they've gone wild. And we know that because they decide that the best response based on the information that we have is what? War. Well, I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles, it's just a couple of pages over to the left. You might want to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 5, and then verses 13 through 14, just to help us understand how quickly they've turned, how quickly the Israelites got to this place of, oh, we need to go to war, okay? 
Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 1, says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. So these are specific instructions about settling in the current land that they're in in Joshua 22, okay? You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Verse four, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place, the place singular that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there, there you shall go. Now jump down to verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So this is what they know, this is what they remember, And this is why there's a seriousness around their response to what in the world is going on. And they're prepared. They have assumed the worst and they're prepared to do what's necessary to make this right and to set the record straight. So pick up with me back in Joshua 22 verse 13. It says, then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the the God of Israel, and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Now, I I personally like what they've done here. They didn't just go to war, right? They didn't go to war based on their assumption. Even though everything seemed to point to that this was happening, at some point in their conversation of how do we respond, somebody must have brought up, hey, let's just be sure. And so they get Phineas and they get 10 chiefs and they go to these two and a half tribes and they confront them. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure this was difficult. But friends and, and brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it's, it's necessary. It, it's necessary that we be willing to confront and have conversations. If, if we genuinely care about the soul's of the people around us, and we think that what we see and what we assume is that what they're doing is contrary to the ways of the Lord, and they have set themselves on a path path that is opposite of the path of the Lord, 
if we have enough thought about it to have conversations with everybody else and to talk about how bad it is and to even say, hey, we're prepared to go to war with them if need be, we must love them enough to have a conversation. Now, I know. I know how that makes some of us feel. Some of you hear the word confrontation and it makes you want to get under that chair you're sitting in. And to be honest, I share that. There's not a lot of confrontation that I really look forward to or that I get excited about. Especially with things of this magnitude. But conversation was the route that they decided to go. And in their questioning, we see some reasoning for that. Again, we see their love. So like, again, I, I, I know they assume some things and they jump to the conclusion of, hey, we need to go to war. But then they sort of settle down and go have a conversation. But part of what comes out in the conversation is they remember of what happened in times past when people were unfaithful to God. Now we start to see their motive. Now we start to see that, hey, they really do genuinely love these people and they don't want to see them under the judgment of God. Hey, hey, we remember what happened in Peor. Look at Numbers 23. And you'll see that they, I'm, I mean, the wording that the Bible uses there is very, very strong in how closely they begin to interact with people that God had forbidden them to interact with. And it diluted the people and it brought on the judgment of God. And so it seems that at least one reason for their confrontation and their willingness to do that was for genuine love and concern for their well-being. Now look at verse 19. <clears throat> but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves the possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 20, another really horrid memory that, that we walked through in Joshua. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So again, they're remembering not only the sins of Peor, but also the sin of Achan. And they have this fresh, vivid memory of one man's sin destroying a community. But I love, I love their response here as well, because basically what they're saying in 19 and 20 is, hey, if it's the land, if the land's the problem, if, if, if the influence of the land and the people, if, if it's too strong for you, come back over with us. Oh, what a wonderful application. Hey, look, even if you messed up, you're welcome. Come, come back. Come back over here. We'll figure it out. We'll find a spot. There's a willingness to invite them back in. And so they had the courage to confront because they genuinely cared about their well-being. So the confrontation was not just confrontation for the sake of confrontation. The confrontation was driven with concern for the spiritual well-being of their brothers and sisters. Now in 21 through 31, how are we doing? Oh, we're good. 21 through 31. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel. Now, this is the two and a half tribes' response. Now we're going to see why they did what they did 
And enough is said in verse 22. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. In the Hebrew, this is El Elohim, the strong one, creator God, the Hebrew writer's favorite word for God, plus Yahweh. El Elohim, Yahweh, El Elohim, Yahweh. So they come out of the gate with this praise and acknowledgement and recognition that he is our God. He knows, speaking of Yahweh, again, we begin to see right off the bat the hearts of these two and a half tribes. Hey, Yahweh's our God. And listen, he knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. And, and, and in a way, what that communicates to the other tribes is, so you're free to love us. You're free to confront us. You don't have to obsess yourself with knowing every motive and every little in and out of our heart and mind and assume all of these things. Yahweh is our Lord. That's our confession. He's our Lord and Yahweh knows our hearts. Watch where they go. He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord Yahweh, do not spare us today. Essentially, they're saying if we are in a breach of faith to Yahweh, strike us down right now for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, pointing at the altar, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. I think it's difficult for us to understand the barrier that stood between these two groups of people due to the Jordan River and the Jordan River Valley. It's massive. Now, this might be difficult for some of you to imagine. Imagine a world without www dot. 
Imagine a world without communication, digital communication. Imagine a world even without, some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, rotary phones <laughs> or pagers. Yes, I had the see-through purple one. It's hard for us to even begin to wrap our minds around what it meant for these people to separate. There was no connection. And so the fear of the two and a half tribes was, hey, look, man, in, in generations to come, there's a chance, there's a chance that the people on the other side of the Jordan will push us away. Out of sight, out of mind, there was a chance that due to the distance that they wouldn't be considered among the Lord's people. And so they build an altar and they're clear. This altar is not for offering. It's not for sacrifice. It's not for worship. It basically is to serve as a billboard. That's essentially what it was. It's to serve as a gigantic, gaudy billboard. It's to be a witness. So when the world comes by and if Israelites come by, they see that and they know these people are the Lord's. Now, I don't think it was a great idea to build the altar. There might have been some other ways. But listen, here's, here's the, the, the point of this text is not for us to walk away with all the social skills we could walk away with from it. That's not the point. The point of this text is there was a deep desire among the people of God for the purity and the worship of Yahweh. Both groups of people had a deep desire to stay close to the Lord currently, but watch this, and for the next generation. That's what this whole chapter is about. The whole chapter is about that we as God's people must approach the Lord and worship in God's way. In any other way, in any other way that we think we can approach the Lord other than the way that he has prescribed, listen, we don't get to him. And we actually bring upon ourselves judgment. And so this, this altar was to serve as a perpetual witness for these two and a half tribes in their desire to please God and their desire to see his glory made in all things. It, it wasn't about the offering. It wasn't about worship. They themselves understood the horror of that. It was so the world would know whose they were, but more specifically, it was so that future generations would know that these two and a half tribes were a part of the people of God. Verse 32 and 34. Then Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The whole matter comes to a satisfying resolution and everyone seems to be pleased and everyone seems to be relieved. Now, the main point, as I mentioned, is that we, still today, as the people of God, must use every possible resource to ensure that our generation and the next 
worships the Lord. We must use every possible resource to ensure that our generation and the next worship the Lord. How do we do that? One way is by taking seriously his commands. Throughout scripture, and this is simple, aren't y'all glad? Aren't you glad that it's not rocket science? This is simple. How do we ensure that we take seriously the worship of the Lord in this generation and the next? First is we take seriously his commands and throughout scripture, this is a characteristic of God's people. This is a characteristic of God's people when they are most effective and efficient in bringing him glory. When they take seriously his commands. And we've already acknowledged this in Joshua, that they already have a written word that they consider to be God's word, that they see as an authority that they take very, 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 very seriously. And so if we are going to ensure for this generation and the next, the pure worship of the Lord, we must take seriously his commands and his words. And it's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect. But if we have a desire to be efficient and effective, and maybe more importantly, joyful in the way that we follow Christ, in the way that we exemplify following the Lord to the next generation, we have to take his word seriously. Second, and this is not more practical because the word of God is always practical, but, but this is extremely practical. We have to care enough to have conversations. We have to care enough about one another to have conversations with one another that they could have lived in the land of assumption. Some of you don't worry, I'm not gonna expound on what it means to assume. Assumptions damage our ability to relate to other people. Assumptions are killers of communication and relationships. In fact, assumption is the absolute worst form of communication. You know why? Because it's not one. It's, it's, it's not one. Assuming focuses on what we think is true rather than what is actually true. Think of Philippians 4 when Paul says, dwell on, think on these things. And what he begins with is whatever is what? True. What's true? Sometimes the only way to find out what's actually true about an individual that there's conflict with, and I know how this makes us feel, and it, ugh, it's awkward, it's weird, but look, we know this, we've, we've established that nobody ever has died from awkward, ever. Never even, nobody's ever even had to call 911 because of awkward. Awkward, is, it, it's awkward, it's what it is, but listen, we have to care enough to have conversations. If we want to ensure pure worship, look, because when we assume, we always assume that we're right, essentially. And so there's pride there, but there's also assumption that we think we know what is true, and it may not be true, but one of the beauties of having conversations and caring enough is, listen, believe it or not, you'll still learn things. We can learn from one another. Like, and I know it's not the point of this passage, but what a beautiful picture of how to function as God's people when there's conflict. And it doesn't always end this way. 
where everybody runs off skipping, you know? It just doesn't. But what we see here is that both had the same desire. They just were going about it in different ways. They both had a desire for the pure worship of Yahweh today and forever. Take seriously God's commands, care enough to have conversations. Third, um, hold, hold one another accountable. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I think it's self-explanatory, but this is Christian discipleship. One of the primary points of Christian discipleship in our sanctification is there, there's, there's a ground and there's a context for there to be accountability. Look, kind of connect some dots here, the commendation and the commissioning. If you don't have relationships with people, there's, it's really hard to commend them in ways. It's really hard to encourage them in ways. And if we think we have the right and authority to just go to a brother or sister straight up with a conflict, straight up with what we think they're doing wrong, and there's no relationship and there hasn't been any effort there, man, it's just not really effective. It divides more than it brings together. So accountability is, is necessary. Accountability takes maturity, amen, right? It, it, takes, it takes maturity to receive criticism, whether it's warranted or not. Nobody likes it, nobody wants it, nobody welcomes it. But in the Christian community, we have to hold one another accountable. Again, not just for the sake of accountability, but for the sake of souls, the motivation of, 20, of chapter 22 was they genuinely cared about their soul. Lastly, never, ever, ever, ever settle, ever, for less or more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't settle for less. Sometimes less is gonna be prettier. Sometimes less may be more palatable. Sometimes more may have its own attractions. But our message and our hope is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And it has to remain that way. And the best thing that we can leave, as Paul said, think of 2 Corinthians 4, as he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Our, our bodies are the jars of clay and the treasure is the gospel. And we have this treasure in these fragile tents, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, in these jars of clay, that we have the responsibility to carry this treasure of Christ crucified as the only hope for sinners to one another, but also to the next generation. And anything less than Jesus is not Jesus, and anything more than Christ is not Christ. I want to close, and I don't have this on the screen, by reading to you from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Joseph, you guys can come back. Starting in verse 19. It says, for in him, this Jesus, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now 23 is really where I want us to focus in as we close our time together this morning. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Listen, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Contrary to our feelings and our experience, it's not as bad as it's ever been. I don't know if that excites you or disappoints you, but here's the charge. Do not let me, and I promise I won't let you, to the best of my ability, shift from the hope of the gospel that has been proclaimed to you from this word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.